Let's pray and uh, get ready to get ready for the study this morning. Lord God, thank you for thank you for the Sabbath day. Thank you for turning us out on a, another hot July day to set here, to set here to give up the lake, to give up the golf course, to give up to give up the the Xbox and the PlayStation, and to give up extra sleep to come here and sit and to listen to your word. Heavenly Father, may we feel uncomfortable today. May we be mindful of our sin and our frailty. May we become, may we be made mindful. We may, may we then be filled with Christ and be united to him as we already are, but more importantly, may we be aware of it as we sit here and as we leave this place and go out about our lives. Make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good to see you all this morning, brothers and sisters. Thank you for coming out. This has been, um, as, as most of you know, we've been, the elders have been doing a series on uh, unforgivably brief biographies of prominent Americans. Um, we've had a we've had an eclectic collection of men and women that we've looked at so far, and we're going to continue that tradition today as we consider the life and thought of Stonewall Jackson. So this may be, this may, um, I think, along with Cotton Mather, this may be one of the more controversial figures we look at in American history for a variety of reasons. We're going to touch on some of that. We are not going to do justice to him the time he lived in or any of that, uh, but hopefully this will spur further conversation, questions, your own research uh, on this interesting man and the world that he lived in and the world that we live in that was shaped by, by, uh, shaped by the era, the generation that he was part of. I'd like to open with a quote from James I. Robertson. He's a former professor, he was a former professor of history at Virginia Tech and a noted Civil War historian, and he wrote, if we don't know where we've been, there's no way to predict where we're going. This, uh, this sentiment has been expressed in various forms throughout it. George, I always remember, George, I always love George Santayana's quote, those who forget the past are doomed to relive it. Sometimes I feel like that could be the theme of this lesson because as, as, many, as your pastor and my, and, fellow el- and my fellow elder have pointed out on various occasions, things that men, the men and women we looked at are grappling with 10, 50, 100, 150 years ago were very many of the same things that we're still wrestling with today. Well, that, that should give us profound humility as we grapple with issues. I, before we talk into Jackson, we cannot talk about Jackson without talking about the Civil War or the war between the states and the reasons it was fought. And we don't have, we don't have time to do that subject justice either. But it, there's something that has to be said. Um, so I racked my brain for three weeks, trying to figure out how I was going to do this, how to discuss the Civil War briefly. <laughs> so here goes. The, uh, so the war was largely known as uh, the war between uh, the 1861-1865, generally known as the Civil War today. Um, those of the Southern persuasion usually call it the war between the states. And there's significant reasons for that, which we're not going to touch on today. I always say, when you're going to consider a war, first question should always be, who's making money off of this thing? Um, because, now that, if that sounds cynical, it is. It is. But that is how, that is what the Apostle James would have us do when we, can, when we see conflict quarrels, whether it's two people in a church or two whole nations on the field of battle. He writes in James chapter 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members... You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, 
yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And at some level, this is, that is every war that's been fought in history. Somebody wanted something that they couldn't have, and they decided to go to war to get it. And very often, both sides that were fighting were looking for things that they wanted. War tends to be, it, war even when fought for the right causes, even fought with the greatest faithfulness, war demoralizes, war tears down principle and truth uh, very, very quickly. Now, as we look for profit motives in the Civil War slash war between the states, they are not hard to find. So in, if you look at the writings of Abraham Lincoln and his administration in the, er, in the early days of the war, you would in the run-up to it, you would hear a lot more about tariffs and industrial interests and low costs and low costs for uh, raw supplies that they were enjoying out of the South. A lot of the preservation of the Union was was motivated by economic interests as the indu rapidly industrializing North was looking to keep, keep out cheap European goods and keep a supply chain from the South for their production. Um, Lincoln, Lincoln would write famously, infamously write that if he could preserve the Union by freeing all the slaves, he would do it. If he could preserve the Union by freeing some of the slaves, he would do it. If he, if he had to preserve the Union by freeing no slaves, he was perfectly content with that. Now, historians will point out his viewpoint seemed to change over the course of the war, and there's a lot of debate about why that was. But initially, there was a, but initially, there was a deep financial interest in maintaining, uh, maintaining the United States as they existed in 18, the 1850s into the 1860s. And then if you're going to look for profit motive in the South, that's pretty easy, too. If you've never done it, I highly recommend reading secession declarations from the, from the 11 Confederate states. Um, South Carolina's, which was the original, is particularly, uh, is particularly revealing. Uh, we, I, I toyed with the idea of reading that, but it's too long. We're not going to do it this morning. Go look it up. It's not hard to find. And you will, what you will find in there are some very fascinating arguments on states' rights and, um, and, the and a, a historical sense that the South Carolina was going to fight the same war as the Founding Fathers in the War, in the war for Independence. And, all, and, and but at the time you get done to it, and, but by the time you get to the end of it, that you realize that at the heart of that, they were concerned about losing their slaves because their slaves were, flee slaves were fleeing to the north and were not being returned as the Constitution required was their main argument. And they said, this, this is tyranny and this cannot continue. And therefore, we must, uh, South Carolina must step away from the union that she voluntarily entered into, take her place among the nations once again. Now, this is not, now, what I'm saying here is not to oversimplify the reasons that any particular man or woman uh, threw their support on one side or the other. Those reasons were very, very complex and different. But at the, but at the top of the leaders, you had a desire for, for defense of industry and defense of slavery were at the top of the list. And I think this is important because when we get into, because uh, when we get into, we need to be careful of the Civil War that we don't get into special pleading or oversimplification. Um, the perception of history today is one largely that it was a perfectly righteous crusade right, you know, by, the, by the boys in blue against the, against the vile villains in the South. Or, or you get the other side, what we cause the, what, what's often called the lost cause rhetoric today, where the South is defended from top to bottom, where slavery, the, the issue of slavery is, is like, yeah, it was there, but it wasn't really important. Um, I, think we have to, I think we have to recognize the elephant in the room, and that was the, and that was the fact, and slavery was a very large elephant in the room.
needs to be dealt with. So I would, I would urge you to try to, if, whatever side you come down on this, I would urge you to, uh, I would urge you to keep an open mind and uh, ask lots of questions afterwards. Some of you have them already, I can tell. Um, before we leave the topic of slavery, we're going to come back to that briefly at various points in Jackson's life. I don't want to talk about that principally today in much depth, not because it isn't important. It is. It's just because I don't think Jackson is the best man t on this subject. We're going to talk about why. Uh, I'm going to, spoiler for my next lesson, we're going to be talking about Booker T. Washington. I think he was one of the most prophetic and insightful men this nation's ever produced. I think, he, I, think he I think he's speaking a message that we need to study deeply today. So I want to deal with slavery and racism more than we consider him. So now let me, so now with that, uh, with that woefully short background on the war between the states, let's talk about its first major battle. What was the first major battle of the, war, of the Civil War? Anybody know? It's variously known as the, fir the, ba the first battle of Bull Run or the battle of First Manassas. Once again, depends which side you're talking to. The, uh, the Federals like to name their battles after rivers and bridges, and the Confederates like to name their battles after towns and cities uh, where battles took place. So it took place just outside Manassas, Virginia, in northern Virginia. That's about 25 miles out of Washington, uh, outside of Washington, D.C. The Federals and Confederates had been skirmishing in various battles all throughout uh, northern Virginia, what is today West Virginia, uh, Tennessee, Kentucky. And, but they finally, uh, the, finally came to serious blows outside Manassas. And it happened on Sunday morning in July, much like, what, much like this today. In fact, exactly 10 days from now will be the 160th anniversary of the Battle of First Manassas, the first Battle of Bull Run. Um, I, should, I really should have swapped with Andrew Renton for next week, and I could have like, preached and done this lesson on that day. Um, this was a both sides, north and south, came into this battle convinced that they were going to wipe the floor with the other side. They were convinced the war was going to be over. Lincoln, when he called for uh, subscriptions to the federal army, he only called for terms of three months because he's like, that's, that's more than enough. Um, when when the, federal, the federal army was, federal army was about 30, it was about equal numbers on both sides, which is unusual for war between the states. Federals brought about 35,000 troops, raw untrained troops, just like, the, just like the Confederates they would be facing. Uh, matter of fact, they, they both sides managed their men so poorly, only not even just over half of, the, of their actual numbers were ever engaged in battle at any one time. Um, that said, Federal Commander Irvin McDowell, leading the Army of Northeastern Virginia, was, a, was an able and workmanlike commander, and he methodically began pushing, uh, pushing the Southerners back. He, uh, he gained an early advantage with a flanking maneuver that was not expected. And by, by, af by the afternoon, the Confederates found themselves back on, their heels with their, back on their heels up against the railway station, which was the main objective of the Battle of First Manassas. This station, if it had been taken, would have given a direct line into Richmond, the, the, the new capital of the Confederate States of America, and basically, an, uh, basically free access straight into the heart of this nation that was you know, just a few months old. Um, the, the Federals were so confident in success that Congress turned out in mass to watch the show. They brought their wives, they brought their children, they brought their picnic baskets. They were set up on a hill overlooking the battlefield of First Manassas. So now on the other side, the Southerners had come to this with equal confidence. They said, one, one Southerners were ten Yankees, was their opinion coming in here. 
and they they were figured they'd be home you know they'd be home in just you know a matter of months as well having uh, having negotiated peace and and gotten federal acceptance of their secession everything would be great now here's the interesting thing is both sides were almost right this was the closest north or south would ever come to a quick decisive end to the war to the civil war um, both of them had an opportunity here to st end this war before it began and so by the time the afternoon of July 21st, 1861, it looked like the Federals were going to do it. McDowell's flanking maneuver had given him the initiative. He was put forcing them back. It was at that point that General Barnard B. from Charleston, South Carolina, he was, was, retreat, was falling back with the 3rd Brigade that he led. And, he, and he, he stopped, and he turned, and he looked, and he saw a man named Thomas Jonathan Jackson standing at the head of the 1st Brigade. The uh, 1st Brigade had not been engaged in the fighting all that day. And Barnard B. said these famous words. He says, There is Jackson, standing like a stone wall. Let us determine to die here, and we will conquer. Rally behind the Virginians. Now, I didn't know this going into the study, but there's actually debate about what B. wrote. Um, particularly, the historians of Southern Persuasion view this as, you know, view this as a romantic declaration that would kind of define Jackson's reputation, and it did. But there's actually a lot of... There's actually a lot of thought that B was really annoyed with Jackson at this time. He was basically saying, there's Jackson standing like a rock. Why hasn't he done anything yet? We don't know, because uh, General B was shot in the stomach and died the very next day, shortly after uttering these words. So we don't actually know the intent of why he said them. What happened, though, is <laughs> if anyone had known Jackson at that time, they would have never believed uh, what he was about to do. Jackson raised his, Jackson, had, Jackson often stood or stood astride his horse with his hand in the air. His men considered this uh, an act of, uh, a gesture of prayer and supplication to his God. Uh, he was also a hypochondriac and believed that one of his arms was longer than the other, so he would keep them up in the air to improve circulation through his body. I don't know which it was, but some federal bullet went shooting right through, ripped off, ripped through one of his fingers at that point, and another one struck his horse. Um, a lesser man would have quailed, but I think, this may, I think something snapped in Jackson that day, for he turned to the 1st Brigade and said, reserve your fire till they come within 50 yards, and then fire and give them the bayonet, and when you charge, yell like furies. And so the 1st the Brigade, the Virginians, fixed their bayonets, and for the first time in his, and then for the first time in the war, uh, at least the first time recorded, the Yankee soldiers heard the famous rebel yell. Rebel yell that we, we're not entirely sure what it sounds like today. Various written descriptions exist. It's basically a combination of a whoop and a scream. Um, if you, uh, if later this afternoon, if you want to hear something strange, uh, go on YouTube and search for, search for recordings of the rebel yell, and you'll find videos posted by the Smithsonian of 80, 90-year-old Confederate veterans in uniform in the early 1900s. They'd been brought together and, and were asked to give an example of the rebel yell. So you've got, you've got six very old men, you know, just doddering up to a microphone, and then they suddenly let loose with this horrendous, unearthly sound. And that's only six of them. So try to imagine, you know, listen to that, and then try to imagine a battlefield full of, full of this. I can say more about that. We're just going to move on. Um, it would be a nice story to say that, Jackson, that the charge of the 1st Brigade under Jackson turned the tide of the battle right in that moment, but that would not be true. What did happen, though, 
is that the, init the federal initiative was stopped and the 1st Brigade held off defeat long enough for General Joseph E. Johnson to come up with Richmond with reinforcements. By the end of the day, the Federal Army was in not just retreat, but a full rout. They were running pell-mell back across the Potomac. Uh, there were chicken legs, there were napkins, there, were, there was fine picnic blankets just scattered on the grass as everyone grabbed up their stuff and headed, headed back to D.C. Um, President Lincoln in the White House had been waiting for a telegram of of a certain federal victory, and what he instead got from McDowell was, save yourselves, get Washington out of Washington. Jackson at this point, Jackson at this point was pleading uh, to follow up the initiative and pursue the Federals all the way back to D.C. They were only 25 miles out of D.C. at this point. They could have camped out on the grounds of the, light, of the White House, and world history would have been very different. At that point, at that point though, Joseph E. Johnson and um, Pierre Beauregard, who were in charge of the of the Confederate Army at the time had no idea that there was no other army between them and the Capitol uh, in DC. So they said, no, hold back, we don't know what we're walking into. And so at that moment, North and South both, you know, both lost the chance to end the war quickly. Now we should never look at a battle like this and forget the most important participant, and that is the Lord of Hosts who looks down over this, this sad field of slaughter like all. Compared to other battles of the Civil War, this was a pretty tame one. There were only about 1,600 casualty, you know, dead and wounded on, either, uh, on the both sides combined. Um, that was nothing like what, we were gonna, what would happen at Shiloh, at Antietam, at Gettysburg, uh, at Chancellorsville, at many other battles, um, which unfortunately we can't touch on. But this one is significant because if the Lord had just done, had been pleased to ordain just a few different things, then that battle could have gone very different ways. And one of the ways, and one of the things that, um, but because that battle went the way it did, the rest of the Civil War went, went on. And so that means instead of living, losing 1,600 soldiers on a battlefield, 700,000 men, women, and children, over 700,000 men, women, and children would die over the successive four years. Black and white, uh, um, Americans, Native Americans, Everything, everyone who was in America would be pulled into this conflict in some form. The Lord could have stopped that. He could have said, no, this is enough. But he did not. And the war went on. And Jackson was a part of that. If you had met young Tom Jackson growing up in Clarksburg, Virginia at the time, it's Clarksburg, West Virginia today, um, you would, no one would have expected this young man to play such a pivotal moment, play such a role in a pivotal moment in history. Uh, Jackson came from a very, very rough upbringing. His great-grandfather had been sent, first sent to America from Ireland as a slave in penal servitude um, for a crime. He met his mother, who was also sentenced to penal servitude aboard a slave ship, and they fell in love and got married as soon as they arrived here in the United States. So this is Jackson's great-grandfather, great great-grandmother. His great-grandfather actually fought in the Battle of Kings Mountain, just up the road from us here. Um, as, as a child, Jackson's father, Jonathan, died young, early, leaving his wife, Julia, with a lot of debt and three young children. Julia worked hard as, um, Julia refused charity and worked hard to um, support her family, selling off all their possessions to try to uh, reduce their debt. Um, but she ended up having to send J um, Thomas Jackson and his sister, Laura Ann, to their half-uncle, Cummins Jackson. Jackson would, have, um, Jackson would have worked at a lumber mill with his uncle, 
And he would spend his evenings reading. As a matter of fact, he made a deal with a young slave of his uncle. If this slave would bring him pine knots that burned very bright so he could read, then he taught this young slave to read, which that would have been illegal at the time. Uh, this young slave uh, and ultimately ended up escaping to the north through the Underground Railroad. Jackson, Jackson, uh, Jackson went to West Point, like many of the generals on north and south in the war between the states. He, uh, he barely made it in. He barely survived his first year. He was so deficient in his studies. He was frequently mocked for his gawky and ungainly um, um, carriage of himself. He, he struggled academically. But by the end of the four years, uh, his, his, colleague, his colleague at West Point, George McClellan, would say that if we just had another year, Jackson would have been the head of his class. He was that determined to study and to advance. And at this time, he was, keeping a, uh, he was actually keeping a, a journal uh, it was known today as Jackson's Book of Maxims. And in that, he was, he was strongly urged for self-improvement. He wanted to be a gentleman. That's a, that's a very loaded term today. Uh, but for him, it simply meant he wanted, to be, he wanted to be someone who was useful. He wanted to be someone who was competent. He wanted, to be someone, he wanted to be someone who was a pleasure to be around in company. He was naturally awkward and shy and diffident. Uh, and he, he didn't want to stay that way. So he was keeping a journal of maxims. Much of them were based on the writings of, a, uh, of, a, of the fourth Earl of Chesterfield from the, early si from the, uh, mid, the late, mid to late 1600s. Um, Abigail Adams, who I talked about last time, she was, actually, she was actually interested in Lord Chesterfield as well. And one of her letters would write to John asking for a copy of them because she'd heard about them referenced. So he based many of them on that, based many of them on his study of the book of Proverbs, uh, and the rest of the scripture, and he would use, and he kind of used them as examples to uh, try to guide his development. What time is it? Oh boy. Okay. Morning is going fast. We're going we're gonna to read a few of those maxims later on here. It was in, um, it was during his time. So following his time at West Point, he, like many, uh, before the war between the states, served and met future allies and enemies in the Mexican War. Um, there's a lot we could say about that, but we won't. Uh, he distinguished himself. Uh, he distinguished himself in several actions there, and then later found himself appointed to a teaching position at Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia. And had history gone differently, that you know we never would have been having this conversation because he was a terrible, terrible teacher at VMI. Uh, stories are told of his wooden and awkward and uh, inflexible approach to teaching. If someone asked him a question, uh, asked for a point of clarification on his lesson, then he would simply stare at them for a few moments in incredulity that anyone would not be following his lecture. And then he would very sternly repeat verbatim the explanation he had just given. Um, he, was notable for, he was notable for nothing except for instilling discipline and obedience, uh, which he insisted upon. Uh, what many people don't know is uh, he taught another class at this time where he was a little better received. It was around this time in the, um, the early to mid-1850s that Jackson um, started to mix in Lexington society, and he did it through, the, uh, through Lexington Presbyterian Church, uh, where he became a member and then later married the daughter of the pastor, Eleanor Junkin. Eleanor Junkin was the daughter he married, not the pastor. Um, she, he, and, uh, he married Eleanor Junkin and became very close friends with, his, uh, with the Junkin family. Eleanor, or Ellie, as he, 
as he called her, uh, that he and Ellie were passionately devoted to each other, but she died just, just, under a year, just over a year later in childbirth. At that time, he became, uh, in grief, became very close friends with her, si- her older sister, Margaret. Uh, and together they, um, together, they were appointed to oversee a Sunday school class in the afternoons for, uh, for black children in the city of Lexington. And so, much like his, uh, much like his cl- class at VMI, class started promptly at 3 p.m., and at 3.01, the doors were locked. And so, if you came late, you were not getting in. Um, histori- so, future Confederate general teaching a black Sunday school, this, uh, this has been a contentious point throughout history. I've heard, I have read all kinds of opinions on this thing. Um, but the consensus seems to be, uh, but, what, uh, but there are some who say, The f- first thing that is clear is that Jackson loved this class to the end of his life. He, uh, he, taught, he taught in this class from 1855 to 1861 when he left for the Battle of First Manassas. Um, and, uh, but through the end of his life, he was continually inquiring and writing and trying to figure out how was his Sunday school class doing back in Lexington. Whenever he had a chance, he would send money, he would send letters. If anyone from Lexington came, he would ask, how is the class doing? Uh, many of his students expressed a lot of uh, love and grief at his passing in 1863, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, there's, also, there's also reason to believe that a great, a great number of black pastors, future statesmen, a lot of um, the class was open to both slaves and free men, uh, and a lot of influential black Americans came out of this class. Uh, there were a lot, many of the white the fine white citizens of Lexington were very concerned about this class and resisted him, threatened re- legal action. Jackson had to stand up, stand up for the class many, many times. There was a great, there was a high amount of literacy that comes with studying scripture and the shorter catechism, just inevitably. Uh, and that was, and that was known, and that was uh, that was a concern, and he never stopped. And it's at this point that, um, at this point, I tried to, I tried to find what did Jackson think of slavery himself. And I think it's significant that I couldn't find anything. I found some co- I found some comments from uh, I found some comments from people on him, and I think we and I think we see in Jackson here one of the great failings of Southern slave owners of the time, even what we would call the good ones like Jackson. Jackson owned six, Jackson and his wife owned six slaves over the course of his life. Um, he was extremely he was extremely conscientious, concerned for both the health and the f- spiritual well-being of the slaves entrusted to his care. He believed that he believed that slavery he believed that slavery was inevitable, as he believed in authority in many areas of life. He believed that it was due to, that obedience was due from one side and conscientious uh, care from the other was necessary. Um, the trouble, and you know, we are I am swimming in dangerous waters here as we try to wrestle with this. But the thing that needs but the thing that needs to be said is that Southern slavery it was that. While we have biblical principles for slavery laid down in Scripture, that's not, they did not define how slavery was practiced in the South at that time. And so I think we see in Jackson an apathy towards that mismatch. A, a well-meaning, a, a, there, he is well-meaning, he's well-intended, but he needs to recognize that slavery in biblical practice leaves the door open for freedom. Um, and that was something that, that the South uh, was very, very fearful of at this time. I don't believe Jackson went off to war to defend slavery. Um, I believe he went off to defend his homeland. Like Lee and many other Southern leaders, 
Um, Jackson was opposed to secession before the war, but once it had once it had been that course had been taken, then he stood with Virginia, uh, and defend in his view defended his home. Then um, this is why I started out this lesson bay about the you know about a lot of the reasons for the war. It's because many men many men, both in blue and gray, had similarly honorable and noble reasons for going off to fight in the war, uh, and it's just grievous that their lives were lost were lost for such a poor cause. So Jackson, so this, uh, <laughs> all right, quick digression. Uh, Jackson was a terrible horseman. He was notorious in this, and that's, we don't understand what that means today. But a man being a terrible horseman would be like my brother Kyle Schmid uh, with scratch bumpers on his challenger outside. You know, it would just take, you, you, you wouldn't say anything about to Kyle, but it would just take our respect for him down a notch, significant notch, if he couldn't handle a, a good car. And this was particularly true in the South, where horsemanship, well, I mean, uh, the southern, southern aristocracy had very little to do since their slaves did everything. So they were mainly concerned with war, politics, and, and horses. And so riding horses was considered, you know, one of the, one of the necessary accomplishments of the southern gentleman. And, you know, and the South produced remarkable cavalry officers. Um, I don't think the North ever matched, quite matched them in that to the end of it. So, you, you know, we have famous, you know, you think of Jeb Stewart with his purple-plumed hat and his upright posture on his horse. And then you think about Jackson, who would have been slouched over with a dumpy old uh, shell cap on his head. He, his stirrups, he put his stirrups up too high so that his knees stuck out at right angles on either side of his horse. This was the man that Barnard B. would have seen, you know, draped over this, draped over this flea-bitten nag at the Battle of First Manassas. You know, it's hard to imagine him saying anything complimentary, so it makes you think about the, the Stonewall Jackson line. But... Um, and the, to the end of his days, this is how Jackson rode a horse. He was unmistakable. You, and you see these portraits, John Paul Stain, you know, riding Jackson, chest puffed out, sitting upright, brandishing a sword. That's not how Jackson looked on a horse. So he was a sorry, sorry spectacle. And so looking at this man at the battlefield of Manassas, you never would have thought this man was in any position to change the world. Um, and yet, and uh, he, would, he was simply, he, he was simply a lousy instructor at VMI, uh, a new member, uh, you know, a recently widowed man grieving the loss of his first wife, um, and, then he, and he was very content to just live out his days as a deacon at Lexington Presbyterian Church, uh, where he served faithfully until going off to the war. But, Jackson, but over the next three years, Jackson would only lose a single battle. His tactics, particularly in the Valley Campaign throughout the Shenandoah Valley, where he Outwitted, out, he outwitted and outmaneuvered multiple federal forces in the area and kept them, kept them from advancing on Richmond. It's still studied at West Point today. His tactics were so revolutionary at the time. His men were, his men were um, half-jokingly called foot cavalry because they would move so fast. And they did it undersupplied and underfed and underclothed. And, they, and Jackson was relentless in his desire to be ahead of the enemy. Um, so, and his men... His men cursed him during the day and then praised him, af- you know, praised him after victories. Um, he, he, uh, he was extremely secretive, which I think was one of his downfalls. He would, not see, he would form plans in his mind and then give orders with no explanation. He drove his officers crazy because they had no idea what he was doing. Uh, he was highly praised by Robert E. Lee, who took over general command after the Battle of First, soon after the Battle of First Manassas, because Lee could just kind of say, Jackson, I want that hill over there. 
And that would be it. That would be all the direction you would give him. And Jackson would be like, I got it. And, he would, and so he would then operate with discretion, knowing what Lee's general ends were. Uh, and together, together, they suffered no major... Together, the, they, uh, with Lee leading the Army of, Army of Virginia, and Jackson is one of his most prized lieutenants, they lost no major battles for the first three years. Well, other than Antietam. So... Um, so that brings us to um, so that uh, that that brings us to uh, 1863 and the Battle of Chancellorsville. Um, this was in this would have been in May, I believe, May in 1863, the Battle of Chancellorsville. This is outside of Richmond, and this is considered one of the most one of the most complete Southern victories of the war, largely because of Jackson and Stuart and uh, cavalry general. Uh, Deb Stewart and their intel their battlefield intelligence which gave them intimate knowledge of the of the federal position and disadvantages. They scout they uh, reconnoitered the field the day before, nearly got shot down by federal artillery doing it, um, and then as a result were able to flank and completely devastate the, uh, the federal army that day. The Jackson was in his mind. Jackson was formulating a plan about doing what he had failed to do at Manassas, and that was turn this retreat into a rout into the end of the war and pursue the Federals right back over the Potomac into D.C. But he didn't tell anybody. He and another general were out uh, late one night coming back from further intelligence following the, you know, the first day of the battle when he was shot, unintentionally shot, by friendly fire from sentries on the Confederate side. He was shot off his horse uh, and fell on the ground. His men immediately realized their error and in horror, you know, constructed a... Uh, constructed a um, <laughs> Two poles, cloth between. Stretcher, thank you. Gurney, yeah. Quickly constructed a, a, a gurney to carry him back to get medical care. And along the way, they were so in their haste and in the darkness through the woods around Chancellorville, they dropped Jackson. And um, historians today believe that his lung was punctured when that, during that drop. He, uh, he was, the gunshot wound was fixed. He, began, uh, he, lost, he lost his arm. Uh, as re had to be amputated as a result, but he was recovering well, and then pneumonia set in. And so about eight days later, he passed away. And then once again, we have to, you know, once again, we have to, uh, we have to wonder why the Lord preserved Jackson at a moment when it would have been easy to just let this unknown, gawky-looking guy on the horse just get shot off and let the war end quickly. Instead, he, you know, Jackson went on from success to success. And it was, uh, and now he falls, he falls in, the stupidest of reasons, it would seem, at the Battle of Chancellorsville. And two months later, Lee led his, the Army of Northern Virginia into Gettysburg and was handed his, the worst defeat, probably one of the worst defeats of the war. And from that on, the, the initiative that Lee and Jackson had, had fought for, uh, for the Southern armies, was lost. And they played the, and broadly speaking, oversimplified, you know, they never got the initiative back after that war. Lee, to the end of his days, would chide his, his lieutenants by, which, by telling them, why can't you be more like Jackson? Because he would continue to try to give these broad, vague objectives, uh, counting on Jackson to understand and fill in the gaps, and no one else, no one else could quite you know, adapt to that like he did. So there are many, many historians who feel that the, uh, as decisive the victory of Chancellorsville was, this is likely where the South lost the war, uh, ultimately. Let me read you just a few things from, just the, uh, as, we've done, as the 
as my fellow elders have done in the past, we'd like to share a few thoughts from um, the men and women that we're talking about. This is from Jackson's Book of Maxims. It gives you a flavor of what he was writing here. He says, ascertain your conversation as well as you can, wherein the skill and excellence of the individual lies, and put him upon his favorite subject. Every person will, of his own accord, fall to talking on his favorite subject or topic, if you will follow and not attempt to lead him. It is not desirable to have a large number of intimate friends. You may have many acquaintances, but few intimate friends. If you have one who is what he should be, you are comparatively happy. Be temperate. Eat too little rather than too much. These are very simple things. And you're reading this, it's, it's easy to find yourself disappointed and wish for something more profound. But remember that this was written by an immature back, you know, man from the backwoods who knew he didn't know anything and was just trying to get the grasp the basics. You know, the theme that runs throughout this is put others before yourself. Uh, you know, do not speak on your own subject. Draw others out. Let them speak. Learn from the knowledge that has been given to others. He would get to a certain point where he would, um, he would, simply, he would simply just, he was simply writing words. You know, let your life be defined by temperance, by silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, cleanliness, chastity. This one, uh, he wrote chastity, and this kind of just boggled, uh, boggled Robertson's mind when he was compiling this book. Humility. And after the death of his first wife, Jackson actually laid this book aside, and, and uh, it was lost to history until the, until the, late, until the late 1980s. Um, Jackson felt that he, he wrote this, following the death of Ellie, he wrote this final, he wrote this final, he wrote these final verses, said to eradicate ambition, to eradicate resentment, to produce humility. If you desire to be more heavenly minded, think more of the things of heaven and less of the things of earth. And with that, he closed the book and uh, didn't, didn't write or refer to it anymore, as far as we can tell. That phase of his life had kind of changed. And the trial of losing his wife um, was, I think, kind of closed that first chapter of it. First chapter of it. So as I think about, as I think about Jackson, I am, I am mindful of the hand of the Lord on his life and the life of the nation at the time. I, I will, I'm going to, I'm just going to put this out there and welcome discussion, but I believe that the Civil War was one of the first great judgments that the Lord laid upon this land. It was a time of trial, of testing, but above all, of, uh, of profound change. The nation that emerged from the, from the war between the states was very different than the one that had gone into it. Um, I personally believe, I, I'll be candid, my own, I am very much of a I come very much from a southern tradition on the war between the states. It was a, this was a passion interest my father and many read from. I've read a lot of material, a, little, a lot of material justifying the southern cause and that side of the war. Um, and I think it's, and I think it is, and it, going back to Robertson's opening lines, I think it's something that needs to be studied more today. Most Civil War scholarship these days is basically the equivalent of pulling down statues in Clarksburg and Richmond and Columbia. And while I'm not generally opposed, you know, and while statues are just statues, um, I wish that those doing it would take time to actually study what men and women wrote and said on both sides and, uh, and, start, and, and start to actually work through some of the stereotypes that have come out of that war. 
particularly because, particularly, uh, particularly as we still fight the same battles today. Writing in the 1840s, Alexis de Tocqueville noted, noted uh, racist strains in North and South in the early nation long before, long before the war between the states happened. This battle, this, this, this war was being fought and it was not resolved by the war between the states. Um, I think I would also, you know, I'd also remind you that another field of, of fruitful study in the war between the states is the religious revival that happened in both North and South during this time. Um, I, wish there, I wish that that had occurred somewhere other than in army camps. I think it might have had, I think it might have had a more profound effect. The third and fourth great awakenings were getting, were either wrapping up or getting ready to start at this time. But we also remember what we talked about at the end of Abigail Adams. Unitarianism and transcendentalism were also, uh, were also running rampant throughout much of the country, particularly in the North. And we, what we began to see, particularly in northern, the Northern abolition movement, was a, a, separation of Christian, a separation of Christian belief and piety from social action. And as, as the Unitarians drifted further and further away from their, their, their Unitarian God and the denial of Jesus, they, began to, they were developing into the Unitarian Universalists we have today, who, set, who, who denied the atonement, who denied simple faith, simple faith and said that, said that social action, social justice, the social gospel, as it was known at the time, is the thing. It is what we do in this life uh, that, really mat- that ultimately matters, not, not the life to come. And so this was a, huge, this was a major driving force uh, between the northern war effort. And so you had that on one side, and you had slave drivers on the other. And I think the Lord looked at both and said, I'm going to give you a Jackson to make this war go longer. And I'm going to take this Jackson away um, so that this war goes on longer. And as a result, we had one of those grievous... It, is, it remains the bloody... I think, I think we should still... Con- as not to take away from the great loss of American life in the world wars that would be coming you know, in a few short decades after this period. But I think we should still consider this one of the bloodiest chapters in American history because no American, no, nothing has ever taken so much American life on American soil as a civil war. And I do not think we should look at history without seeing that bright red spot and wondering why did the Lord permit that to happen. Let me read you one last quote. I'm so disappointed. I brought a huge stack of books, and we haven't, we've barely cracked them open here. Uh, Jackson's second wife, Anna, was at his bedside as he was dying outside of Chancellorsville. And he said to her, I know you would gladly give your life for me, but I am perfectly resigned. Do not be sad. I hope I may yet recover. Pray for me, but always remember in your prayers to use the petition, Thy will be done. Any questions? You've got 60 seconds to say profound things. Yes. I would read widely on Jackson because he's a contentious one. So um, you, his uh, his book of maxims. I have to get. I don't know if Corey's here today. Corey loaned me his book of maxims. This is written by James I. Robertson. He's considered probably the definitive biographer on Jackson. Um, he has, this is just his comments on Jackson's maxims, but he has a large, bi- a thick biography called, Stonewall, uh, called Jackson, the Man, the Myth, the Legend. Uh, that would be a good starting point. If you want to see, um, Robertson's, a pretty, Robertson's a pretty even-handed. He'll tell you what was right and what was wrong about Jackson. If you want to get into 
Uh, if you want to get into Jackson's spiritual life, then Robert Louis Dabney's um, also thick biography is good. But I would be careful with Dabney because he was racist and he was pretty, uh, he was pretty blindly committed to the Southern cause. So there are, there, are por- there are large portions of this that become belabored, painful defenses of, of uh, slavery and, um, and you know, Southern independence, no matter, you know, in, no matter what. My country right or wrong. So Jack, uh, Dabney's a bit jingoistic, but he was also a Presbyterian pastor, so he was able to grapple with uh, Jackson's spiritual life uh, better than many. Uh, those would be my main resources. Andrew, I know you've been reading. What would you recommend? <laughs> yes, he was. But, but, he, but he became Stonewall's chief of staff because Stonewall liked to hear him preach. And so, you know, he, the, the Word of God, when he writes, when he writes people, he's always sprinkling the Word of God in what he says. Yeah. And uh, I just, I find it, I find it wonderful that he, uh, though he wrote this That's, yeah, that's a perfect summary of Dabney. <laughs> um, any other questions? Bob. Um, when did um, Jackson, at any point, make his initial... Jackson's great-grandfather. Yeah, Tom, so Stonewall Jackson's great-grandfather came in. Yeah. Not that close. Do you want to ponder that question for a bit? Or? Yeah, no. I'll go on. <laughs> okay. That's an inter- it's an interesting point. Uh, there was a lot of white slavery in the early days of the United States as well as black. No, nowhere near the same size, but that was a factor. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think 
everything I can read, everything I read indicated they absolutely loved him. Loved he and Margaret Junkin, who was playing the piano for him at the time. There was a lot of love there, which is one of those complications of this period of history that people stumble over when they come to study it. Nathan, did you have it? Yeah, Timothy. We could say a lot about Jackson and the Sabbath day. He not only was willing to fight on the Sabbath day, he didn't open mail on the Sabbath day because he felt, he felt that that might give him some worldly preoccupation or concern, so he would leave letters unopened. Yes, he was extremely reluctant to fight on the Lord's day. Um, actually, he and Lee both, I read a quote from Lee as I was studying this, how, how one of the great casualties of war is the Sabbath, that uh, we can, you know, Hauschel, actually the way, I love the way Lee put it because it was not just... He first said, how should, we, how should we cope without it? And then how should we be forgiven, was his thought. Uh, Jackson was of the same mind. He believed that the Sabbath was holy, it was set aside. He was conscientious in everything he did on it to make sure it was uh, you know, of the Lord. And so it was always with deep reluctance that he'd have to fight on the Lord's Day. And usually, and it was, but it became, it became tied up with his commitment that once, once we... Uh, he, um, some cadets at VMI, as the war was just starting, asked him what you know how he believed that um, how he believed what you know what his view on the war was, and he he spoke against secession, but he said that should Virginia secede, then I believe we should draw the sword and throw away the scabbard. So he believed in relentless war, and so and that and so even that was often his response. If he had to fight on the Sunday, he was going to be particularly ruthless to try to get in and get it done quickly. It's an inter- such a such a man of contrast in so many ways. Nathan, do you have something? Okay. Anything else? All right. Well, it is about time to worship, so let's pray and prepare to go to the Lord. Lord God, let us remember at this time that history is your story. And Lord, we find it befuddling and frustrating and confusing. But Lord, we know from your perspective that all of history, both our past and our future, stretches out before your throne like a sheet of glass. There's not a single piece out of place. So we, Lord, we yield to your, infant, your perfect wisdom and acknowledge that these grievous, that the, grie- the grievous sins of slavery and war uh, and infighting that have defined so much of our history were ordained, or even ordained by you. And Lord, we, and Lord, as Jackson would write, we pray we would accept them as your discipline and that we would learn from them that we may avoid your judgment. We make this prayer in Jesus' name.